0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting
1: for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, welcome to Downstone's History. I've got another medieval podcast on. There seems to be a flurry at the moment. I'm being told off left, right and center about using the word medieval incorrectly. Let me tell you, after this last week, it's never happened again. This episode, we've got the wonderful Seb Falk on the podcast. He's a man after my own heart. He's just written a book called The Light Ages. He's rebranding the Dark Ages, guys. It's now The Light Ages. And actually, (laughs) he's pretty convincing. This is a great interview. It's very interesting to hear him talk about, particularly his work with astrolabes and astronomy. And he points out that navigation, maths, and astronomy were greatly advanced during the period that we tend to think of uh, as the medieval period, even in the so-called Dark Ages and uh, trust me, you'll never use those same words ever again. He's also a sailor, and so we're going to try and get out there and sail across some, some big bodies of water, some oceans, some seas, seeing if we can use those navigation techniques, whether it's Norse, whether it's Portuguese, whether it's uh, anyone in the medieval period, using their, uh, using their navigational techniques and equipment. Um, if you want to watch programmes about the Middle Ages, about the medieval period, well, you have got you can do so at History Hit TV. It's the world's best history channel. There's no aliens on there at all. You just go to historyhit.tv. You enter the code POD1, P-O-D-1, to show you're a podcast listener, a loyal listener to the podcast. And then, everybody, the exciting thing is you get a month for free, and your second month is one pound, euro, or dollar. So go to historyhit.tv. Have we got some shows for you this autumn? You are not going to believe it, this fall. Uh, and use that uh, use that code POD1. In the meantime, here is Dr. Seb Fork. Enjoy. Seb, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, I've just had Elna Yanniger on the podcast shouting at me for misusing the term medieval. And I know that you're, you are someone that feels very strongly about this as well. Tell me why all of us who've been walking around very cleverly talking about the invention of science in the 17th century and beyond, why are we all wrong about that?
2: Well, I'm on a quest to rehabilitate the word medieval and I want us to think about all of the incredible creativity and ingenuity that existed in the Middle Ages. But basically we're wrong because we judge everything on our own terms. And, and the first job of the historian, of course, is to try and judge the past as much as possible on its own terms. Of course, we're always reading the past through present-tinted glasses, but we've got to try and make the past make sense in the same way as it did to the people who lived through it. And so if we say, oh, people in the Middle Ages, uh, they didn't have the same technology as we had, therefore they must be rubbish, they must be stupid,
1: well then they don't stand a chance, and we don't stand a chance of understanding them properly. Where did this come from? I keep thinking to myself, you know, I was too scared to say to Eleanor because I didn't want to shout at me. But, you know, the fifth, the fifth and sixth century in, the, in, in England, weirdly, in Britain was almost... I mean, obviously in northern Italy, it's different in the east. But in Britain, it was a really terrible time to be alive, right? It was just a shocking... It was, if I dare say, like a little bit dark, okay? It was like a bit, you know, not very nice. Is it just simply that our 19th century forebears were so obsessed with Rome and, and their kind of hangouts of Rome that they just assumed that what came after Rome um, was somehow a kind of retreat from, from that pinnacle of, of greatness?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of that. And, and of course, a lot of it goes right back to the Renaissance, where people in the Renaissance were trying to um, portray themselves as the heirs to ancient Greece and Rome, and as recovering the knowledge of ancient Greece and Rome. And of course it goes back to the Middle Ages, the, the medieval idea that uh, the the best way to acquire knowledge was to find out and to study what authoritative people had said before. So the best kind of knowledge was the knowledge that had stood the test of time. And the knowledge that had stood the test of time was was the oldest knowledge and the knowledge that had lasted. So if you could study ancient knowledge, then then that was a best a good way of... of Uh, acquiring science and acquiring wisdom. So all of that idea of revivifying and recovering the knowledge of the ancient Greeks inspired the Renaissance and then in order to give some value and in order to show that what they were doing was really valuable the people in the Renaissance kind of dismissed everything that had come in between. But in any stereotype of course there is a grain of truth and I wouldn't deny that in many ways the lives that people lived in the Middle Ages were of course more difficult and more precarious than our own. And ask any historian, even a historian of the um, Middle Ages who really thinks we should value the Middle Ages, when would you rather be living? And they would say of course they'd rather be living in the 21st century. So you know let's not Let's not overdo this, but my point is, when we think about the Middle Ages, so often we think about them as a dark time, but we also think about them as a time when all there was was wars and kings and queens, and that's what we study. And and my job is not so much to say, you know, hold on, things in the Middle Ages were brilliant, but if you're interested in the Middle Ages, you should be interested in every aspect of life in the Middle Ages. And life in the Middle Ages included a, a hell of a lot of science, and it included ingenious astronomical instruments like astrolabes, It included inquiry into the world, study of astronomy, and asking all kinds of questions about the world around them. So people in the the Middle Ages, they may not have known as much about the world as we do today, but they were no less curious, they were no less inquisitive, and they had their own scientific mindset that was absolutely valuable and logical uh, and a scientific
1: method, you know, equally valid in its own way as our own. You and I both love sailing and you've mentioned astrolabes there and and, and astronomical observations. I know that's something you're an enormous expert on. And it strikes me, yeah, that that we look back at the Romans. I mean, one thing they were pretty rubbish at was ocean ocean passages on their ships. And by, by the the beginning of the early modern, i.e. through the Middle Ages, we get like a revolution in shipbuilding, don't we, with Carvel hulls and uh, hulls that are able to withstand ocean journeys. And then we're not to mention the, the Portuguese voyages of exploration that begin, I think we can fairly say, in, in the late medieval. And uh, and the Vikings, of course, the greatest European journey of exploration probably of all time is squarely in the Middle Ages. So so it's funny how we are we, we're not careful enough to remember that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we have to kind of put it into a global context and think about the Chinese exploring the Western Pacific and the Indian Ocean and think about, you know, Polynesians and, and Central American civilizations as well. But from the European perspective, all of the foundations for what we call the Age of Discovery, for Europeans exploring across the Atlantic and into the Indian Ocean, were laid in the later Middle Ages. So it's mapping uh, and, and thinking about the ways that you can make the world mappable. It's using the magnetic compass, it's understanding of the tides, and as you've said, it's shipbuilding. Uh, and of course all of the other really important stuff like how do you provision a, a boat for a long voyage all of that stuff was kind of worked out in the later middle ages gradually through the
1: 14th and 15th centuries your book is very provocatively called the light ages which is great and you, you mention in your book some of these beautiful manuscripts beautiful objects that you've come across it's a very tactile book if that's the right word talk, talk to me about some of your favorite things that you feel has, has, has opened that door and given you the chink of light from that period
2: yeah i mean it was a joy to write it because there's so much fun stuff in the middle ages it's not just manuscripts it's also amazing instruments and inventions above all the astrolabe which is the kind of medieval smartphone uh, which you can use to tell the time you can use to work out the direction of north or identify a star or find the time of sunrise or work out the height of a building all kinds of things and what i realized about the middle ages was that medieval people love their gadgets so in many ways we can really identify with them because they love uh, these um, lovely brass objects um, which I'm waving an astrolabe around at you now which do incredible
1: things and look cool as well so just like our iPhone today because sadly this is a uh, an, an audio medium um, it looks very like at the risk of being very uh, lowest right it looks like Lyra's um, thingy bobs in the northern lights in the northern lights, the Philip Pullman trilogy you know when she twists it all around whatever that thing's called and it tells the future and all that sort of jazz that's what it looks yeah, like exactly right
2: it's a brass disc and it might be as small as the palm of your hand or it might be as large as an open hardback book and it's a brass model of the heavens and you can use it to find the, the locations of stars and you can use it to model the world around you and it's a kind of tool for understanding. But there's so much ingenuity uh, in the Middle Ages and there's so much that medieval people were kind of curious about. They're interested in the animals that they find around them, they're interested in plants and herbal remedies and medicine and, and above all astronomy and mathematics. So they work out these incredibly intricate detailed mathematical tables to calculate the positions of the planets and to work out exactly exactly when the sun is going to be in a certain place and that's useful for agriculture and it's useful for astronomy but it's also useful for astrology because the universal understanding in the middle ages was that everything that happened down here on earth was a reflection of what happened up in the heavens just as the sun warms the earth and the moon makes the tides so the stars and the planets also affect what's going down here on earth including your health and the weather and so they were really curious to find out as much as possible about the positions of the planets the positions of the stars and of course in in so doing they in, in, in understanding the motions of the sun and the moon they also give themselves the tools to make really astonishingly precise clocks and the first
1: mechanical clocks come out of the later middle ages as well so copernicus with his copernican revolution surprise surprise doesn't just pop out of nowhere i mean like newton copernicus is standing on the shoulder of giants is he
2: yeah absolutely and of course when newton said that uh, standing on the shoulders of giants that is a, a medieval idea that newton is repurposing so newton knew how well embedded he was in medieval foundations, although there's a little bit of false modesty there with Newton, I think. But uh, absolutely, Copernicus depended, first of all, on the kind of early summaries that were made of late medieval achievements by people like Reggio Montanus and Poiobach, German astronomers of the 15th century. And going back earlier, Copernicus depended on the observations and analyses of late medieval astronomers, a whole army of them, who just observed and wrote down and calculated. And he's also dependent on the achievements of islamic astronomers astronomers from as far west as spain as far east as central asia who are working out really refined geometrical methods of making the planets move in the right way to accurately model their observed motions and so that's one of the things i wanted to do in my book was to show that when we tell the history of science as a parade of great men a few isolated geniuses that were quote ahead of their time we're just completely misrepresenting it in fact there was just this army this battalion of unknown often completely anonymous scholars who were making observations who were coming up with ideas who were improving instruments who were tinkering and tweaking and inventing and all of them worked together to lay the foundations for visionaries uh, like Copernicus like Newton and one of those is the guy in my book John Westwick who's this kind of anonymous monk that I just picked out as being representative he had this fantastic amazing life where he went on crusade uh, he got dysentery probably he ended up in this clifftop monastery you know he did much more than you would expect a monk to do but in many ways i could have picked thousands of others who made their own tiny incremental contributions to the development of our knowledge and who represent this medieval interest this medieval
1: interest in nature this medieval ingenuity you know i've never really thought about this before but as you know when i was reading a book and as you're talking now thinking about astronomy i often thought it was weird why they're all obsessed with astronomy given that modern scientists look through microscopes and look at computers but in a way astronomy was the one thing that lent itself to science because it was predictable and mathematical and in a kind of chaotic world where you couldn't look at the you, you couldn't look at the behavior of atoms and you couldn't look inside the structure of the cell what you could do is look up in the sky and find regularity it must have been very inspiring for people of a scientific bent That's precisely right, yeah. The basic principle,
2: going back to Plato and Aristotle, is that everything in the heavens moves in endless perfect circles, so you can predict it. But of course, as they observe it more and more closely, they realise that those perfect circles don't quite predict what the planets do, because they move in funny ways, and particularly the planets, which get their name, planet, from the Greek word for wanderer, because they're wandering stars, as opposed to the fixed stars that always stay in the same position relative to each other so uh, they observe those planets and they see them go backwards and they think well that's a bit weird how can we account for that so there's a real kind of creativity there's a real drive to coming up with better models coming up with better ways of explaining the motions of the planets. so it's something as you say that they can measure that they can predict that they can make models for but of course there's also that element of understanding creation as a whole and that goes back to before Christianity but it's something that's taken up enthusiastically by Christians as being a way of getting into the mind of God if you can understand creation You can understand God. So, uh, you know, this myth, of course, that the church was anti-science is complete rubbish. The church supported science because science was going to be a way to find out more about God. The book of nature was as valid as the book of scripture.
1: And that's a metaphor that was used in the Middle Ages. It just makes me think more and more about the kind of traditional interpretation I got of the Renaissance when I was growing up. And what I find fascinating about being a generalist and just jumping around like a little robin redbreast from period to period. I keep finding when I meet other specialists in other centuries, they've, they've got their own renaissance. So I'm like, what oh, do you mean there's a 12th century renaissance? And then and then you've got the renaissance, and then you've got the scientific revolution, and then you've got the enlightenment, and then you've got the dust revolution, and then you've got the tech revolution, the 20th century. Guys, it strikes me we're all on just one giant... You know, we discover bronze, right? And then our species just goes mental for about 5,000 years, and we're still in it. Like, maybe there is just one huge rena- renaissance slash enlightenment that's going on, and we've been a bit too weird about trying to diss certain very short periods of that millennial journey um, and and sort of pick, whereas in fact there are generations of our forebears have, have all been having these extraordinary explosions of intellectual and scientific creativity.
2: Yeah, I mean, in my period, uh, the, the big kind of buzzword is the 12th century Renaissance, uh, which is a, a kind of concept that was popularised hundred years ago uh, by Charles Haskins, who wrote this book, The 12th Century Renaissance. And he argued that with the foundation of the universities, the rediscovery of ancient texts, the development of lots of new religious movements, and indeed even artistic and literary movements, this should itself be seen as a kind of a Renaissance. But in a way, if you're kind of just saying, oh, well, the people who talked about the original Renaissance, the Renaissance of the sort of 15th, 16th centuries, were wrong, my Renaissance is better. Then along come the you know the Carolingians, and they say, "Well, what about the Carolingian Renaissance?" So you're just going to push it back and back.
1: They're they're a tough crowd, those Carolingian Renaissance folk. I mean, Jesus.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you're going to just keep saying, well, the roots of this period are in that other period, well, ultimately, you know, that's always going to be the way. Uh, But it's the classic historical question, right? What changes and what stays the same? And when we're looking for important changes, we always end up finding the roots of those changes in earlier periods. And and that's just kind of what you're going to find in human history. So I think the problem is if you try and hold up a single period as being uniquely revolutionary or uniquely important. Of course, human history goes in waves. I think the problem is if we think of progress as being a constant linear improvement that everything is constantly improving and we we have to sort of try and find the moments when it improved fastest that that's when we're going to misunderstand how things work because a people have not always asked the same questions so progress goes in different directions and b of course sometimes it goes backwards sometimes we we make mistakes and those mistakes are an important part of history. They're no less interesting than when we get it right. Uh, and my quest really is to convince people that the Middle Ages is far more interesting than just endless wars and marriage alliances. You know, people are inventing stuff, people are asking interesting questions, they're writing fascinating texts, and they're just having a lovely time looking at the world around them and exploring it.
1: Why is there traction that word medieval? I mean, do we think... Do we think that like catastrophic pandemic disease I mean that is something in the fourteenth century that's very striking about Eurasian history, uh, but is there something there around perhaps our, our struggle against microbial disease?
2: yeah, maybe I mean it's impossible to explain. I think it's just one of those words that has this meaning now that medieval means a bit rubbish means a bit backward, uh, and that's just a meaning of the word and so since this period was called medieval, people assume that the word that the period must conform to what the word says so it's almost being read backwards now it's a little bit like the Black Death you know a lot of historians don't like to talk about the Black Death because it misrepresents a the disease and it also seems to define the disease down to a very narrow period of time in Europe when actually we now know it has a much longer history and a global history. But historians will still call it the Black Death because it's just an easy term that people recognise and they can understand. So you know a lot of historians say well maybe we should ditch medieval because it's got this negative connotation. My view is to try and reclaim it as much as possible and make people think of the amazing cathedrals and, and the scientific ideas and the literature and so on. But in a way it's always going to be a bit like that because medieval now has this meaning of being a bit backward. You know, when people People talk about ISIS or FGM or you know other things that that they don't like they describe it as medieval and they don't even really they're not even really making a historical judgment it just means bad the trouble is that we call that period medieval too so we just kind of have to disambiguate it it's like when you go to Chicago and you have a deep dish pizza now that's nothing like actual pizza but they call it pizza Italians call it pizza it's just the same word used for two totally different things and everybody should make peace with it
1: I mean, that's a, that's a brilliant parallel. But you mentioned cathedrals there, and actually, let's just quickly talk about this, because, yeah, you know, that doesn't fit in any way the, uh, the negative ideas about the medieval world. Because the, the kind of the Gothic cathedral explosion in, in medieval Europe, I mean, look at Lincoln, arguably it overtakes the Great Pyramid of Giza as the tallest building on planet Earth, Lincoln Cathedral. So you're sitting there thinking, something's going on. Something is going on in this period, and it's pretty wild. Yeah,
2: and and there's hu- there's there's other really important developments in technology, in agriculture, ploughing, and crop rotation, and milling, and engineering, like camshafts, and the development of spectacles, and the development, of, as I said already, of precise mechanical clocks, paper milling, the universities. You know, huge. Uh, important developments. But I think there is a different way of thinking, a way of thinking in which everything is kind of holistically governed by these rules, by by the power of God, and by uh, kind of rules in which the universe is a sort of understandable whole, which does get changed slightly in the scientific revolution. And so it is kind of possible to mark it out as being a slightly different mindset. But that doesn't mean that it's a mindset that lacks ingenuity, or that lacks interest, or that lacks inspiration. So we just have to kind of put it try and understand it on its own terms as much as possible and try and think well you know when we are thinking about the hundred years war or the black death you know in the mid 14th century we're also thinking that this is a time when people are making astonishingly beautiful brass astrolapes that this is a time when people are constructing a gorgeous and enormous gothic cathedrals that are not only beautiful but also uh, marvels of engineering so we kind of have to try and understand it all together which is a hard thing to do but i think if people look at it in those terms then they can see that this is as rich and as interesting a period as any other in human history
1: and we haven't even talked about the glory that is chepstow castle there we go (laughs) um so, so thank you so much seb what is your book called it is the light ages a medieval journey of discovery and it's out
2: on 24th of september and available in all good bookshops and i really hope people will read it and enjoy enjoy getting to learn about the discoveries and the science of the Middle Ages in the, through the eyes of medieval people and through the eyes particularly of John of Westwick, uh, this adventurous medieval monk who's the star of the book.
1: And there is a, there is an, I wouldn't say starring role, but there is a guest appearance by Dee Snow in the introduction when I used the term medieval in, to make a little joke about Steve Bannon who was saying I'm going to go medieval on someone and uh, I made a little gag and you, typical historian, quoted me in context and took me to school for my stupidity. So thank you very much for doing that, buddy.
2: Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity and for your inspiring and uh, provocative presence on Twitter. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me.
1: Hi, everyone. It's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying, and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it, and I hate myself. Please, please go on to iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good, and then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks.
0: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all.